If you have a Bible, I would love for you to make your way to Acts 28. For those of you keeping score, that is the last chapter in this book. Acts 28, we're going to look at the first 10 verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can either follow along in the bulletin or on your app, or you can grab a Bible from the pew rack and make your way to page 937. We're going to uh, look this morning at Acts 28, the first 10 verses. Of course, that means next week. This long journey has come to an end. I did not see my shadow last week, um, so we will end it. Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read today's passage. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And my prayer, as it is every week, is that you, by the Spirit, in conjunction with the word, would work. You would work among us and within us this morning. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would go before uh, as we collectively read your word and as I seek to faithfully preach it, and that you would accomplish the purpose that you intend for each of us individually and for us as a body collectively. Do the work that you intend to do. Ultimately, we pray that you would um, give us receptive hearts and eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might once again be confronted with our sin, but ultimately shown our Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen. This is God's holy word. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. May God write his word upon our hearts. So before we dive in, let me give you just a bit of background. For the last several years, going back to around chapter 20 and 21, 
in the book of Acts, in Luke's historical record of the early church, going to around chapter 20, 21, the last several uh, chapters cover um, anywhere between three and four years, and the centerpiece of that is Paul's life. So if we go back a few years, uh, we've seen a similar story repeating itself. Paul is on trial. He, he faces an arraignment before a, coun- a council or a magistrate or a Roman governor, uh, and, and then he's transferred from one sort of court system to the next. And eventually, Paul, because he has dual citizenship, he's a Jew by birth, but he has Roman citizenship, he uses his Roman right, and he appeals to Caesar. He, he sees this thing going in a southward direction, and so he makes his appeal to Caesar. Well, he's kept in confinement, and he's awaiting a ship to Rome. They didn't have a 5 o'clock train or a, you know, a 7.30 flight on Southwest going to Rome every day, so he had to wait for the next ship headed to Rome. About three weeks pass, and he's put on a small ship with 200-plus other prisoners bound for Rome. This first ship was a smaller ship. Uh, it, it made about a week's journey, and they were transferred to a larger cargo ship, a ship that was on its way from Alexandria, Egypt, to Rome. It was a cargo ship carrying grain and such, and they hitched a ride. They left Caesarea, this group of prisoners. They left Caesarea, which is where Paul had been for the last many months, in early October. And I mentioned this last week. Early October was the beginning of the stormy season in the Mediterranean. And so Paul told Julius who was a Roman centurion in charge of the prisoners, he told Julius, we should wait. We should uh, find a safe mooring. We should anchor for the winter. We we shouldn't uh, travel all the way to Rome in the middle of the stormy season. But Julius was, was dead set on getting these prisoners to Rome as soon as he could, and so they set out on this ill-fated journey, and Paul was proven right. Um, A strong northeaster storm settled over the area for three-plus weeks, and ultimately the ship ran aground. And we learned last week the captain of the ship tried to find a a safe, uh, gentle beach to sort of uh, run the ship aground, but he ended up crashing into the reef and the rocks, and the ship broke apart. All the men went overboard, but all men, 276 of them, made it safely to the island of Malta, and that's where we pick up today. That's the context. If you're visiting this morning or if if you've been out for a few weeks, that's how we've gotten to this island, an island whose name means refuge, Malta. All 276 men spared. Now, I believe that there are two truths that jump out from this passage, truths about the way most people think about spiritual matters, and truths about the way that we as Christians must think about and understand real gospel salvation. We're going to come to those two truths, but first, I I want to to first make a larger observation from this entire passage, a larger observation about the way that Paul related to the people of Malta and the way the people of Malta related to him. Friends, God intends for his people, he intends for us, to establish relationships wherever we go with whomever he puts in our path. God intends for his people to be a welcomed presence in the world. 
Now, we don't know a lot about the Maltese. We don't know a lot about them. We know that they were somewhat primitive. They weren't walking around carrying spears, wearing loincloths, but they were a somewhat primitive people. We also know that religiously, they, they embraced some form of polytheistic paganism. In the second verse, in Acts 28, verse 2, Luke describes them as the native people. He uses that, uh, that noun a couple times, that adjective a couple times. He calls them the native people. That, that word native, it's the Greek word barbaroi. If you were to transliterate it, not translate it, it would be B-A-R-B-A-R-O-I, barbaroi. Obviously, it's where we get our English words barbarian, barbaric. And so, Older translations, like the King James Version, they sometimes translate that phrase, the native people, as barbarians. I think that's a, a poor translation um, because the word barbarian, it, it, uh, it has a number of meanings, but it, it means uncivilized, savage. And these people were not that. They were not uncivilized. They were not savage. They were somewhat primitive. But, but simply, what it means is that they, they had their own customs that they retained, and they spoke their own language. So, Malta is um, an island about 60 miles, or sorry, next week they'll get to Sicily, which is 60 miles off the south coast of Italy. This is a further, this is a little bit further east, but it's not far from Italy. This is a, Malta's a Roman colony, which means that the Roman Empire had, had sort of taken it over. But the people of Malta had not fully embraced all of the Roman customs, and they, they hadn't embraced the Greek language. And, and so when Luke uses the phrase, the native people, I don't want you to have some image of Lord of the Flies and kids running around in loincloths holding spears or some sort of backwards, backwater people. He simply means people that although they're in the Roman Empire, they're not fully immersed in Roman customs and the Roman language. And the reason I, I stress that point is to make this point. How do we view people who are different from us? People who are foreign to us, people with whom we share very little, whether we find ourselves um, on the other side of the world or whether people from the other side of the world find themselves here. How do we view others and relate to others, particularly those who are unlike us? And I believe that one of the subtle points that the Lord would have us to see is that as Christians, we must establish relationships with those who are different from us. We're not only meant to build relationships with people who, who are like us, who share our language, with people that we have commonalities now, this is, this is certainly true for those of us uh, in the church and how the church operates. The, the church is not confined to a certain race or a certain nationality or a certain socioeconomic status, but it goes beyond just the church and the Christian faith. Wherever God puts us, wherever we find ourselves, we must prioritize building relationships with others. Now, Jason's not here today um, to hear this praise, but I, I believe that he does that about as good as anyone. Um, he's constantly meeting strangers, but they don't stay strangers for long. And so at the gym, when he is, is there working out, he's told me about people that he's met and really established relationships with those who are rich, those who are poor. 
those who speak English, and those upon whom he can practice his Spanish. Wherever he goes, and so I, I've, I've been friends with Jason for, for nearly 10 years. I've been his co-worker and colleague for, for five plus years. We've traveled together. We've gone on mission trips together, general assemblies together, retreats, guys' weekends, church functions. And wherever we go, whether it's on the island of Cuba or the country of Texas, wherever we go, Jason establishes relationships particularly with folks who are unlike him. I think that we can learn from his example. I think that we're meant to learn from the example of Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, the three identified Christians who find themselves for three months on an island of what Luke calls the native people, those who didn't share Roman customs, those who didn't speak the Greek language. And yet, can't you see it in all these ten verses? the deep relationship that's, that's almost immediately formed and forged over their time so that when they left, it was almost like saying goodbye to a dear friend. They loaded their boat up with anything they needed. As Christians, we must establish relationships, particularly with people who are unlike us. Here's a second part to this observation. God intends for us to be a welcomed presence in the world. He intends for his people to be a welcomed presence in the world. So we know that the people of Malta held to some form of polytheistic paganism. The way we know that is that when Paul was bitten by a snake, which we're going to come back to in a moment, when Paul was bitten by a snake, they assumed that he would die. And they said, justice has not allowed him to live. And as we were reading that, you may have noticed the word justice is capitalized. See, the word justice is a form of the word dike, which is a, a, a goddess of vengeance and revenge. And so we know a little bit about their belief system. It's not just one person. The people said amongst themselves, justice, the goddess of revenge, has, has not allowed him to live. Surely he will die. And so we know a little bit about their belief system, their their religious practices by what they assumed would happen. And I want you to hang with me just for a moment. What would you do if you found yourself in the company of, of pagans, of pagan idolaters, of people who not only didn't follow Christ, but who were quite opposed to the cause of Christ? What would you do? Maybe a better way of asking that, I think I used the double negative four times in there, Maybe a better way of asking that is this. How are Christians supposed to respond to folks who embrace other religions? And how are we meant to live in a world that is most certainly opposed to the cause of Christ? And I, I fear that too many Christians want nothing to do with people who hold to other religions. So we try to keep our distance, lest we become stained or tainted by their false gods. But that's not what we see with Paul and his companions. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus welcomed these people and were welcomed by them. They weren't afraid of spending time in Publius' home. They weren't afraid of eating with him. They weren't afraid of establishing real relationship. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are called to be salt and light. Not just simply called to be, that we are that the one who is light has, uh, has, has given us 
that very light, that we are the salt of the earth, that we are the light of the world. And what that means is that when we, when we are placed in unsavory places, when we are placed in the midst of darkness, that we are meant to be a welcomed presence. What we see in this whole encounter, just these ten verses, is something akin to genuine friendship. It certainly looks like that. Friendship between Christians and non-Christians. Friendship between uh, people of different backgrounds. And and so I I don't think it's the main point of this passage, but it is just simply an observation that I want you to wrestle with. That, That what we find is three Christian men, of course Paul is the focal point, finding themselves among people who didn't share their customs, didn't share their language, and yet... They welcomed them and were welcomed by them. People who didn't share their religious beliefs, in fact, who were were pretty rank idolaters, and yet, and yet they ate together, they established relationships together. And I think if we extrapolate and sort of pull back, we can see all kinds of applications for ourselves. What does it look like to be among people with whom we don't share much of anything? People, in fact, who, who we might struggle with, you know, we, we struggle to understand their way of life, their, understand their language or whatever. So with that in mind, I told you that I think there are, I believe there are two spiritual truths that jump out from this passage, really the, the main points of the passage. And here's the first. Many people believe and live life according to a principle of karma. That many people believe in karma, but, but really that just... That is death. Karma kills. What I mean by this is that when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to spiritual things, many people, perhaps most people, believe that what goes around comes around. They believe that if you're a bad person or if you're immoral, then God or a God or some force will not be kind to you. Or, or conversely, that if you're good in this life, then you can expect good in the life to come, if, if there is a life to come. And we see that kind of thinking, we see that, the practice of that belief in the people of Malta. I, I, I loved last week's passage, I may have told you this, I, I loved last week's passage because I'm an aspiring sailor and I love the sea, and that was what the whole passage is about, a voyage at sea um, with all these nautical and mariner terms, but an ill-fated voyage. So I, I enjoyed it. I hate this passage because I don't like snakes. <laughs> I only have a few, I don't know if they're true phobias, but they're, they're certainly um, things that I'm not, not real fond of, and heights is one. Um, Seeing blood and gore turns my stomach. I'm not a fan of that, but the top of the list for me is snakes. Um, I don't care for them one bit. Well, here's the scene. So, so, so I read this, and I'm like, let's just fast forward past that. Paul was gathering firewood. The rain was coming down. Um, it was cool. Remember, it's the beginning of the, the winter season there in the Mediterranean. The, the rain was coming down uh, Paul was gathering firewood when he threw the bundle of sticks on the fire. A viper came out and struck him and actually attached itself to his hand. And when I was reading this this past week and 
and sort of jotting some notes down, I uh, was immediately reminded of this event that happened 13 years ago when we lived in Alabama. We, uh, we lived at 410 Grand Avenue, just about a half mile up from the bay and, and um, the, the, the marina and the yacht club area, but just on the up, up, um, up the street a little bit. And uh, next door was a family who had pet snakes. Now, I, I, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but if you have a pet snake, I have serious questions about you. <laughs> well, this family, this family that lived right next door, um, they had a couple of sons, and their two sons were about the ages of our older two boys, Cademan and Kreth, and so they would play together frequently. They would come over to our house, play in our backyard. They would play together. So one day, um, the mom, she brought out this large python, but this large python had just given birth to a little small python, a little small baby snake. And so she asked Cademan if he wanted to hold this little baby snake. And of course, he said yes, which makes me question him. <laughs> but you can imagine Kate, the scene folding, unfolding kind of between our two yards. Um, Cademan is holding this little baby snake. This large python is wrapped around the mom. And when Cademan begins to hold this small snake, the, the mom snake freaks out and stretches out and strikes Right, strikes him right in the forehead. Now, they don't have fangs. They actually have teeth, these, this particular type of python. And, and so he had, like, teeth marks, like a bite mark for, for, for months. And, of course, you've, you've, you've busted your noggin here before, and you know how little, how little there is there and so how much it bleeds. So you can just imagine the scene, right? A snake latches onto his forehead, and blood begins to pour out. Well, Kimbo had just walked out of the house as all this was unfolding. And so, sort of reactive, not thinking, but reactive, she throws the snake down, she pulls Cademan away, and then we were, the, 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 the mother, the other mom, was a nurse, and she assured us that, that snakes never do that. <laughs> no, she did. She's like, no, Th this, 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 type of, this type of constrictor, it never, it never does that. Like it, it, it just did that. <laughs> we were phased by that. Maybe scarred. But the funny thing is, Luke's not one to mince words, Luke's not one to give abbreviated details. Uh, he spent an entire chapter um, covering a shipwreck last week. So if Luke had wanted to include what Paul thought and felt and kind of how he responded, he certainly could have done that. He does that throughout the entire book of Acts. But it doesn't seem that Paul was phased all that much, does it? This snake jumps, it's a viper, the text says, jumps out of the fire, attaches itself to its hand. Apparently, it's on his hand long enough for the people of Malta to develop an opinion about this person, Paul, before he shakes it off. But notice what they said collectively in verse 4. They said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea, Justice has not allowed him to live. 
do you, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying karma has a way of taking care of bad people. The goddess of revenge has gotten revenge. It's taken care of things. She's taken care of things. If this man were innocent, truly innocent, while he escaped from the sea, he has not ultimately escaped. And friends, most people look at life. That's their outlook on life. That's their outlook on spiritual things. They, they base things on karma, and unfortunately, I believe too many Christians do as well. I mean, it makes sense. It's understandable. The world tends to operate this way. We're told, and it's generally true, that there are no free lunches. We're told that what goes around comes around, and many times it does. We're born, we, we are born with a penchant for legalism, and so we assume that if we're good people and do the right things, then God will bless us, but if we're bad people and break God's law, that we'll face the consequences. But God inserts himself into creation, and he destroys that kind of thinking. I've shared this with you before. It's been a number of years, but I'll share it with you again. I think it's apropos. In a 2005 book titled Bono on Bono, the lead singer of U2 said this, The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical law, every action is met by an equal and opposite reaction. So it's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. Grace defies reason. It defies logic. Love interrupts, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I would be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. That does not excuse my sin, but I'm holding out for grace. Amen to that. How about you? Are, are you like the people of Malta, the Maltese? Are you like most people? Are, are you basing and are, are you looking at life from a perspective of karma? bad things happen to bad people, good things tend to follow good people, and if I just do this, modify my behavior, get in line, follow step, then I'll be blessed and God's favor will be upon me. Do you base your standing with God on the law of performance or on the message of the gospel? Bono's right. Christ came and through the gracious gospel destroyed any notion of karma. You see, Jesus gave his perfect life for the most imperfect people. How is, how is that right? How does that follow? God does not treat us as we deserve. He treats us based upon the merit of Christ. We don't have any, or we, we can't do anything for it. The old hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And even this he gives you. God doesn't operate based upon karma. He operates on gospel grace. The funny thing about this is although it's just a, it's just a, a Greek equivalent of the name Dike, they say justice 
has not, has not, let, uh, not let him get away, right? J- justice has not allowed him to live. Friends, do you know who the Bible says gets justice? Jesus. Jesus gets justice and we get mercy. So, so this whole perspective of karma, it must be put to death. Here's the second spiritual truth. Good works evidence the gospel. The way that Christians are meant to think about salvation, the way that we are meant to live as saved people is this. Our good works do not save us, but they give evidence of salvation, and God uses them to testify to the gospel. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, probably many of yours as well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand or in advance that we should walk in. Salvation is entirely by grace. It's entirely through faith. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Good works play no part in our salvation, but they are evidence of our salvation, and God has planned and prepared for us to walk in love and good deeds in a way that evidences and testifies to the grace of God. And so after Paul didn't die, after, he, after the snake had bitten him and he did not die, the people changed their tune and they began to call him a God. And of course, Paul was not a God. But he began to use good works amongst the people and particularly the work of miracles to testify to the true good God. Publius's father was sick, quite sick. And so Paul prayed for him and healed him. And then he healed many others. Now, now you and I have not been given the gift of healing, like Paul and like the other apostles, like the 70 for a season that Jesus called. Does not say, I'm not saying that God doesn't work through us, doesn't work particularly through the elders who in James were told that uh, God, the Holy Spirit, working through authority in the church can and does often heal people physically. We certainly believe that. But this idea that, that I have some uh, power to heal physically, we, we don't find that. There's no scriptural warrant for that, friends. But we have been given a gift to use for the benefit of others. So Paul had a particular, Paul had many gifts, but a particular gift for use among these people was the gift of healing. You and I don't have that, but we do, and we have been, we, we have been gifted to live and, and perform good works so that others see God and the power of his gospel. Our good works, our good deeds, doing good among others, that, that, that does not add anything to the gospel, but it adorns the gospel. So when we live faithful lives, 
when we love our neighbor through good deeds, through acts of service and mercy. I, I mentioned it last week. I sort of said it in passing. I was going back and listening to some of the sermon audio this past week. I couldn't remember. I was trying to, to connect last sermon to this sermon. And uh, I said it in passing, so you may not have heard it. But one of Luther's um, more well-known quotes is that God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor does, and so God has prepared in advance for you to do good works, not for, certainly for his glory, but not because he has need of them, but because others do. And so good works, service, and mercy, and sacrifice, in Paul's particular case, the, the, the healing of people, but in our particular case, maybe it's simply the helping of others. It gives evidence to the life-transforming power of the gospel. Let me give you a little history. History records that Publius's father, the, the first man who was healed by Paul on the island of Malta, that he was converted and ultimately became the bishop of Malta. Malta is traditionally, and this is, this is not conjecture, traditionally thought to have been the very first Roman colony to largely convert to Christianity, almost entirely. And to this day, to this very day, they celebrate Paul's ministry and they celebrate the message of the gospel annually with a feast on February the 10th. Now sometimes, I, I, in reading some of that history of, of the Maltese conversion, I, I think some of it is, is, is tradition. It's things that have formed over time. But, but what is certainly true is that for three months... On this island, Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, but Paul as the principal, performed good works among the people with his life and hands and testified with his mouth to the goodness of the gospel, that he wasn't a God, but there is a God. They lived as followers of Jesus among people who, who had no knowledge of Jesus, and God used their lives, not just their words, but their lives to adorn the gospel and give evidence of the gospel. Friends, this is how we must think about God's amazing salvation. That we must fight against the tendency to view life from these karmic principles. That we're not saved because of our good deeds. That God doesn't relate to us upon how we based upon what we deserve. He relates to us simply by Christ through faith in Him. And then, then we're called to live in light of that salvation. We're called to live in light of this incredible, amazing salvation, to live and to love and to sacrifice and serve, not in order to get something, but because we've already been given something. The greatest gift imaginable, salvation in Christ. And when we, when we live that way, it testifies to God's grace. It testifies that, that we're not God's, but we serve a great God. It testifies uh, to a different way of, of approaching the world. And so let's pray for the faith to believe that, um, for the faith to live that way, and for the Spirit to be at work. Heavenly Father, Ten short verses, three short months. 
your first miracle was sparing these men's lives, sparing the prisoners and Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, Julius, the others, sparing their lives because of your covenant and covenantal faithfulness to Paul. But Lord, beyond that, just the, the, the very simple testimony that we see among these men to truly love others and, and be loved by them, to know and be known, to develop relationships, to, to not seek to keep distance from people who don't share the same language or share the same religion, but to truly invest. Lord, may we do that. And may we love people through acts of service and mercy. Father, may we put our, our, our money where our mouth is. May we put our hands and feet to action that not only do we believe in a gracious and giving God, but we're willing to graciously give of ourselves in whatever ways God's gifted us, whatever way you gifted us. And may, may people see that. As Jesus himself said, let your light show shine before men that others may see your good works and bring glory to your Father in heaven. Lord, may the world see our good, our good works. And may they see past those to the one who has, who has given the ultimate good work of his life and, and, and provided salvation for us. And we come, we come with believing hearts to the, to the table this morning, believing that their, Paul and these men, their only hope was Christ, and our only hope is Christ. And so do through this meal um, the work of once again confirming our interest in him, of strengthening our faith, of feeding our souls. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our